it's hard to believe, but in three weeks, we will have finished our walk through the Gospel of John. Next week, we're going to be focusing on Jesus being betrayed and being denied. And then the following week, we're going to look at the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to celebrate communion together on Sunday morning. And then the next week is Easter Sunday, and we're going to focus on the resurrection and what the resurrection means to each and every one of us who are Christ's followers. But today we're going to be in John 17. So I want you to hold your Bible up right now and repeat with me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John 17, John's Gospel, the 17th chapter. Growing up in a pastor's home, I was taught to pray at a very early age and began praying even as a preschooler. And I can remember as a little preschooler kneeling down beside the bed and praying this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I can remember sitting down at the lunch table, at the dinner table with my family oftentimes and, and praying this prayer, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. And back in the day when I was a kid, when we played Little League Baseball or anything, we all gather on the field together. The opposing teams would gather and we'd, we'd say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know the Lord's Prayer. But today I want us to look at what I believe is the real Lord's Prayer. You see, what I began to quote earlier really isn't the Lord's Prayer, it was the Lord's answer to a question that his disciples ask him. I, I like to call it the disciples' prayer. Some call it the model prayer because Jesus gave that prayer in response to a question when the disciples said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And he gave them a pattern to follow. It's not a prayer that we need to pray, that we need to recite, that we need to repeat. But it's a pattern that can teach us how to pray effectively. But the passage we're in right now, Jesus had just celebrated Passover with his disciples. The very last Passover that he would celebrate with his disciples. He had washed the disciples' feet. He had taught them some incredible truths that we're going to prepare them, not just for the next several hours, but for the days and years that would lie ahead. He was about to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified on a cross. But before he heads out to the garden to be betrayed, he prays to the Father. Some people call this passage the Jesus High Priestly Prayer. Other people say that this chapter is the Holy of Holies of Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce said that in approaching this chapter, we should feel a little bit like Moses at the burning bush. He suggests that we should take off our shoes because John 17 is holy ground. 
This is what I know when I read this chapter. Jesus bears his soul to the Father in prayer. But that really shouldn't surprise us because Jesus' life was bathed in prayer. When Jesus started his public ministry, the Bible says that he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights to pray and fast. Oftentimes during his public ministry, he would retreat from his disciples to get along to pray. Sometime it was very early in the morning before they would wake up. Other times he would pray throughout the night. There were times that Jesus' prayers would last only seconds. There are other times that Jesus' prayer would, would last for hours. But now, as Jesus is about to come to the end of his ministry and be crucified on the cross, he is praying again. This prayer consists of around 600 words in the Greek text. It doesn't take long to read it. It didn't take long to pray it. But what Jesus prayed was powerful. And its effects are still being felt today. And what amazes some people is that Jesus was God the Son, God in the flesh, and let, yet he felt the need to pray. But what you need to know is even though he was God, he was surrendered to the Father's will, and he wanted to walk in the Father's will, so he prayed. And even though he was God the Son, God in the flesh, he longed for intimacy with the Father as he had experienced throughout eternity. And so he would pray to the Father. And I believe the same should be true for every single person who calls himself a disciple of Jesus today. Our desire should be to walk in the perfect will of our Heavenly Father. And the way we find that is through his word and through prayer. And our desire should be to spend intimate time with the Father. One thing is for certain, the early church modeled that. The Bible says that they were devoted to prayer. They prayed about everything all the time. And Paul was talking to the church at Thessalonica. He said, pray without ceasing. When he was talking to the church in Ephesus, he said, pray at all times. James, the apostle, said that the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. I love what Ron Dunn said. He's now in heaven. But he said this. He said, prayer is the secret weapon of the kingdom of God. It's like a missile that can be fired toward any spot on earth, travel undetected at the speed of thought, and hit its target every time. Now, as you seek to break down this text, you, you see that it's broken into three sections. First, Jesus prays for himself. Then you see Jesus praying for his 11 disciples. And then you see Jesus praying for the church, the disciples of all Ages. But what's amazing to me is that Jesus prays this prayer right in front of his disciples, most likely out loud, because he looks up to the Father and he says, it's as if Jesus was having this intimate heart-to-heart -heart conversation with his Father, and he invites his disciples to listen in. Robert Murray McShane said this. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. 
But then he said this, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for us. And the fact is Jesus is still praying for us. In Romans chapter 8, it says Jesus is at the Father's right hand interceding for us. In 1 John chapter 2, it says Jesus is our advocate pleading our case before the Father. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says Jesus lives forever to make intercessions for us. Think about that. God the Son at the right hand of God the Father, always interceding to the Father on your behalf. He is praying for you, praying for your well-being, praying for your power, praying that, that you will have boldness, praying that you will remain holy. He is forever interceding for you. Doesn't that make you excited? Our Savior is praying for you. Then as we dive into chapter 17, what I want to do is, is I want to share with you three truths that I believe apply to all prayers. And we see these in the first, the, really the first verse. And then I want to share with you what Jesus prayed for his disciples, you and, you and me. Because what Jesus prayed I believe, needs to be a focus of what we pray for. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, if Jesus prayed these things for us, then we certainly should pray these things for one another. So what can we learn about prayer? The first thing is this. Prayer is simply talking to God. Notice how verse 1 begins. It says, after saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, I'm afraid a lot of people get confused and even scared when it comes to prayer. We hear people pray these long prayers with these big theological words and we think, I could never pray like that. Or we hear people pray with this emotional fervor that is overwhelming and we think, we could never pray like that and that's okay. You don't have to pray like that. You don't need to pray like that. And to be honest with you, I don't think you ought to pray like that, especially using those big words. Because after all, who are you trying to impress when you pray? You're not trying to impress anyone. You're not trying to impress God. God's not impressed by you. He's not impressed by me. You're just talking to God, sharing with him your heart. You don't have to learn some club lingo to pray. You don't have to turn a certain way to pray. You don't have to be in a certain position to pray. You don't even need to know God's word at first to pray. All you need to know how to do is talk because that's what prayer is, talking to our Heavenly Father. It's talking to the one who created you from nothing, the one who loved you even before he formed you. The one that wants you to come into his presence, to step into his presence and enter into his throne and sit in his lap and just share your request your heart with him that's what prayer is it's just opening up your heart and talking to the father that leads us to the second truth we see here and that is prayer flows out of a relationship with God notice what Jesus said continuing in verse 1 he said father the hour has come and that word father is found six times in this 
chapter. Six times Jesus addresses God as his Father. Now granted, Jesus had a unique relationship with God the Father because he was God the Son. And the Bible makes it very clear that Father and Son have been one throughout all eternity. They are living in perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, perfect unity. And yet Jesus tells us that we are to look at God as our Father. When Jesus taught his disciples that model prayer, he said, this is how you begin our Father who is in heaven. That's how we address God as our Father. In chapter 20, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. You see, when we pray, we're praying to a God who is our heavenly Father, whom we have a relationship with. We aren't praying to a stranger or some higher power that is unknowable or some impersonal force that doesn't care. We're praying to our heavenly Father who loves us more than we could ever know. And just as Jesus has always been one with the Father, he wants you and me to have that same kind of personal, intimate relationship with the Father. He is our one and only Heavenly Father who loves us and created us for our relationship. Have you ever thought about Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, and on the sixth day God created man in his image, in his likeness? The Hebrew is literally saying that, that what God did is akin to looking in the mirror and then creating us. He made us to be part of his family. He made us to be sons and daughters of God. He made us to rule and reign with him as his heirs. That's why he created us. But I want to remind you, God is not the father of everyone. In John chapter 8, speaking to the religious leaders of the day, Jesus said, you are children of your father, the devil. See, there are some that believe that, that God is the father of everyone, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the only way that God can become our father anew is through Jesus. You see, sin broke our relationship with the father. And for us to be born again into the family of God, we have to come through Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come into the Father but through me. The only way we can know God as our Father is through a relationship with Jesus. We humbly acknowledge that we're sinners destined for hell. We turn from our sin trusting Jesus to be our Savior and we surrender our life to him. He saves us. And he makes us part of his family. So prayer, genuine prayer flows out of a relationship. But then the third thing, and this is the most important thing that I'm going to say today. Though I think all of it's important. Our primary desire in prayer is that our lives bring glory to the Father through the Son. Let me say that again. Our primary desire in prayer is that our lives will bring glory to the Father through the Son. Now, when Jesus prayed, he wasn't first and foremost praying for his safety or his protection, even though he was about to be tortured 
and brutally murdered on a cross. He prayed for God's glory. Notice how verse 1 continues. He says, glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. You see, one of the evidences of immature praying is that it is me-focused. It's all about my needs, my wants, my desires, what's best for me. Now listen, I want you to know God wants to meet your needs, and he wants to even shower his blessings on you. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. In Acts chapter 7, when Jesus is teaching the crowd about prayer, he says this. He says, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. But then he says this. You parents, if you're children... Ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? No. Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? God loves to bless us. But as we grow closer to him and discover his will and his plan for the world, we discover that our desires change And thus, our prayers begin to change. It's no longer about our health or our comfort, our safety or our needs. It's about God's glory. And everything else, everything else is a distant second to God's glory. Jesus wanted more than anything for God's glory to be displayed. He wanted God's glory to be revealed to the world. You know that word glory? It's found eight times in some form in this chapter. But that word is it's kind of hard to define. In the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word is kabood. It is found 376 times. It's most often found in the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah, and the book of Exodus. The word kabood means weightiness or heaviness. What glory seems to be is filling the whole weight, the splendor, the riches, the dignity, the reputation of who God really is. When Moses said to God in in Exodus 33, show me your glory, he was saying, God, I want to see you for who you really are in all of your glory. I want to see your greatness, your splendor, your majesty. I want to see your perfect holiness, your goodness. But what you need to understand is this. For you and I to understand the weightiness of who he is and give him the glory that he deserves, we must also be aware of the weight of who we are and what we deserve. You see, God is is almighty God. He is forever strong. He is the creator of the universe. He is self-existent. He is perfect. He is holy. He is loving. But we, we're futile. We're empty. We're weak. We're lustful. We're bent to go our own way. We can be hateful and spiteful. He, God, He deserves thousands of angels, thousands of worlds, millions upon millions of people singing praises to him forever and ever. We we don't deserve any praise. We don't deserve any glory. What we deserve is to be eternally separated from God forever. 
God is worthy of honor and love and devotion. We are not. There is no exception. There is no point where you and I somehow earn some of God's glory. God's glory is his weightiness. The weightiness of who he is. In the New Testament, the word is doxos, the word from which we get our word doxology from. If you're a little older like I am, you grew up singing the doxology in church. Sometimes we would sing it after the offering. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. And there's all kinds of verses that talk about praise to God because doxa is all about praising God for his majesty, for his splendor, for who he is and what he does, his divine goodness. In this passage, we see that word used as a verb, we see that verb used as a noun. When it's used as a verb, it's talking about an appropriate response to God's glory. When it's used as a noun, it's talking about what God's glory is. And just as Jesus wanted his life to bring glory to the Father, we should want the same thing. And what you need to understand is absolutely everything we do, absolutely everything that happens to us, the good, the bad, and everything in between, is to either bring glory to God or reveal God's glory to the world. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. It doesn't matter what you're doing, your life from start to finish, Every hour of every day, not just your Sunday, but every second that you exist, your life should be lived to bring glory to God. And so after this, Jesus prayed. He prayed for his disciples, and as we look at his prayer, I believe we see several things that we should pray for the church, our church and and the universal church, the, the capital C church. First of all, we pray for unity among the people of God. That was big on Jesus' heart, unity. In verse 11, Jesus said, Now I'm departing from the world. They are staying in the world. But I'm coming to you, Holy Father. You have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. Did you get that? Jesus prayed that his people, the church, his disciples would be united in the same way that the Father and the Son are united. And they are perfectly united. In verse 21, Jesus said, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Now, don't miss that. Jesus is praying that just as the Father and the Son are one, he wants us to be one. But then he says, I'm going to help you do that because I'm going to come live in you. And as I live in you, it's going to help you be one with the Father, which is going to help you be one with one another. And then he gives us the reason that he wants that is so that the world will know. You see, our desire for unity isn't so that we'll get along and and not fuss and fight, though that's a byproduct. The reason for unity is so that the world will recognize Jesus is the Son of God. 
And then in verse 23, it says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as I, as you love me. I love what A.W. Tozier says about unity. I read it this week, first time I've seen this, and it really spoke to me. Listen to what he said. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Now think about that. The way you tune a piano is through a tuning fork. And so you don't tune one piano and then use that piano to tune other pianos. No, you tune the piano, then you take the tuning fork and tune the next piano. You take the tuning fork and tune the next piano. And when you're using the same tuning fork to tune all of the pianos, then they will all be in perfect tune. They will all be in perfect harmony because their unity, their harmony is not based upon them being in tune with one another. Their unity and harmony is based upon them in being in tune with the Father. You see, the reason that we are in harmony and unity with one another as the family of God is not because we all agree on everything. It's because we are all in tune with the Father. And when we're all in tune with the Father, we're going to be in tune with one another. And yet, when we look at the church today, the capital C church, the church universal, that's not the way it is. I mean, we're divided over so many things. If you go on social media, and I hope you don't follow pastors, because if you do, they're some of the worst. Pastors just attacking other pastors and other churches and belittling them and just talking about how they're not biblical because of this and they're not biblical because of that. And here's what I know. Since Jesus ascended into heaven, Christians have disagreed on issues. There are some Christians that believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. We believe that as a church. There are other Christians that believe you can lose your salvation. As I study scripture, I see why they believe that, to be honest with you. There are some churches that that say that the gift of tongues has ceased. It's no longer a relevant gift. There are others that say it's a relevant gift, but it needs to be used biblically. There are others that say, no, everybody needs to speak in tongues. Now, we've got an opinion on that, but we're not going to just fuss and fight over that. There are some that say that women should be pastors of churches. There are others that say, no, the Bible is very clear that women shouldn't pastor churches. And and so they disagree on that. There are some churches that agree with this. There are some churches that agree with that. What happens most often is that causes these churches to divide. And here's what I believe. We shouldn't let these secondary issues divide us. What we need to focus on is Did Jesus die on that cross for our sins, the sins of the world? Is there an empty tomb that proves that he defeated sin and death? Is the word of God true? Can we trust it in our daily life? And is Jesus coming back again? And if we agree on those things, then we can disagree on some secondary issues and change the world. But if we continue to divide over the secondary issues, we're never going to change the world. Jesus prayed for unity. And you and I 
need to pray for unity. The second thing that Jesus prayed is for joy. And we should pray for joy as we walk through life. Listen to verse 13. He says, now I am coming to you. He's speaking to the Father. I told them, my disciples, many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with joy. Now, don't miss that. Jesus said, I taught them many things. Why? So they would be filled with joy. Now, as I look out at you, some of you don't look filled with joy. I mean, some of you look like you've been run over by a freight train been dragged by a car life's been tough to you and you're letting life defeat you but I want you to hear God's word I taught them these things so that they could have joy you see joy is an inward happiness and peace that we can have outside of the circumstances in our life. Our joy isn't dependent upon what happens to us. I talk to my mother almost every day. She's 86 years old now. She's living in Tampa, Florida. And my mother's had some health issues for a while now. And and when we talk, we typically talk about her health issues. She brings them up. I'll say, Mom, how are you? She said, I'm okay. I'll go, well, Mom, how are you? Just Okay. She'll proceed to tell me. And then she will say, how are you doing? I said, Mom, I'm doing great. And she said, well, how's your back doing? I said, it hurts. And my mom says, well, doesn't that bother you? I said, well, I don't like it. But I'm not letting back pain determine how I face life. There are some of you here who are followers of Jesus who have had it tough. I get it. You face defeat. You've experienced loss. You've walked through pain. I understand. And I'm here to tell you that if Jesus is living in your heart, it's time to get over it. It's time to let his joy flow through you because he's up in heaven right now sitting at the right hand of the father interceding for you praying that you will have a joy that overcomes the circumstances of this life we pray for joy and then third we pray for safety as we live in a world that opposes us with an enemy who wants to destroy us now I want to read this passage we're not going to have time to unpack it But listen to what it says beginning in verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Now, in verse 11, Jesus said, I'm praying for their protection. Now, what is he talking about? Is he talking about their physical protection as they live in a world that is opposed to them, as they face an enemy that really wants to kill, steal, and destroy them? Is he talking about their physical health? No. Because if Jesus was praying that the Father would protect them from pain and suffering and death, then his prayer went unanswered. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus ever prayed a prayer that went unanswered? 
No. Jesus always prayed in God's perfect will. And the Bible says that if we pray according to the will of God, he will hear us and he will give us the desires that we pray for. So if we pray in the center of God's will, God's going to always give us what we pray for. Jesus always prayed in the perfect will of God. And so he's going to give it to us. So he said, Father, I pray that you will protect them, keep them safe from the evil one. He's talking about spiritual safety. He's saying, Father, I am praying that they will not give in to the temptations of this world. I'm praying that the pains and the problems and the persecution of this world will not overwhelm them. I'm praying that they will endure to the very end. I am praying that they will never give up. They will never lose faith. They will never turn around and go home. He was praying that God would be with them as they walked through enemy territory seeking to set captives free. Next, we pray for holiness, which comes through God's word. Listen to verse 17. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Jesus prayed that we would be holy. That word means, is, the Greek word is agios. It means sanctified, set apart. Jesus was praying that we would be different than the world. And the way that we become different from the world is through the Word. God's Word, infused into our life, changes the way we live. And we become different from the world. And so, let me ask you a question. Are you different than the world? And you say, sure, I'm different. I'm different from that prostitute that's out on the street. I'm different from that drug addict who can't control themselves. I'm different from that you fill in the blanks. But let me ask you this. Are you really different from that moral unbeliever that lives down the road from you? That unbeliever that loves their family? That unbeliever that is honest in the way they interact with other people? That unbeliever that would give you the shirt off their back? Are you different than them? Because we're supposed to be. There's supposed to be something so incredibly different about us that the world will see that we are different from them. Even those that have the same morals that we have. Then next we pray that we will be faithful to the mission that we have been given. Verse 18, it says, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. I love the message translation. It says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. Jesus is praying that we'll be faithful to the mission. You've been given a mission if you're a child of God, if you're a disciple of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, go into the world and make disciples. That's our mission. It's not my mission. It's our mission collectively your mission isn't to come to church on sunday morning once every couple of weeks and and watch a show your mission is to be a disciple out in the world making disciples for the glory of god and we should be praying that the lord will send forth laborers into the harvest field and then finally we pray in anticipation for what's to come verse 24 as jesus was closing up this prayer said father i i want these whom you have given me to be with me where i am then they can see all the glory you gave me because you love me even before the world began jesus prayed that that his disciples 
would be where he was. He wanted his disciples there with him in heaven. He prayed that for us. And he said, I want them to see me in all my glory. You see, the Bible tells us that now we see through a glass darkly. The word glass darkly is kind of like a dirty glass window. It's all smudged up. We see, but all we see is shadows. And when it comes to Jesus, we see him, but we don't see him. We see through a glass darkly. But one day, we'll see him face to face. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, he said the eye hasn't seen. The ear, it hasn't heard. The mind, he can't even conceive what God has planned for those who love him. It's beyond our comprehension. And that's what God wants us to experience. This past week, one of our saints went home. Jane Dillon, she was 86 years old. She loved Jesus. Back when we were making some changes in our worship style, Jane Dillon was a senior adult then, and she said, I love these praise songs. She was always one of Davis, David's biggest fans when everybody else didn't like David. <laughs> she loved David. She was a worshiper. She was a witness. She went out with Pastor Steve doing door-to-door witnessing as a senior adult. She was a saint. She loved Jesus. This past week, a little before 12 o'clock, she was ready to go home. She looked at her husband, Jimmy. They'd been married for 67 years They said they loved each other since they were 10 years old. They didn't get married that early. (laughs) 10 years later, they got married. But they said they loved each other for, for 76 years, 77 years. She turned to Jimmy and said, are you okay with me going home? He said, yeah. Then a few minutes later, some of her family around her, She said, I see Jesus. Some of her family members said, do you see this person? Do you see this person? She said, no, I see Jesus. Now, I don't think that was necessarily saying that those other people weren't there. I think what it was saying is that when we see Jesus, we really don't care who else is there. She saw Jesus in all his Glory. When Stephen, who was one of the very first deacons of the church, was stoned to death for preaching the gospel, he was about to breathe his last breath as they were hurling stones at him, and he looked up to heaven, heaven opened, and he saw Jesus. And the Bible says that his face began to shine with the glory of God. God's glory just washed over him. And God's prayer for us, Jesus' prayer for us, is that one day we will behold him in all of his glory. So let me ask you, are you ready? Do you know him? Are you certain that you're going to behold his glory one day as Savior and Lord, not as judge? We're going to all stand before him, but not everyone is going to stand with a smile and open arms. 
some are going to stand in absolute fear because they realize that they've rejected the only one who could give them hope. And if you're here today and you've never truly surrendered your life to Jesus, then what are you waiting for? One day every knee will bow before him. He's your creator. He made you for a relationship. That's why you're here. It would be horrible to go through life and miss out on why you were created. Don't miss it. So if you're here and you're uncertain whether you know him, you're going to see him, then I encourage you in just a moment to come down. And Pastor Matt will be down front. I'll be down front. And if you're not sure, you just come. You take one of us by the hand and say, hey, I want to make sure. Our altar is going to be open as it is every Sunday, and we encourage you to come to this altar and just pour out your heart to God. Remember, prayer is just talking to God. That's all it is. So just pour out your heart to God. You may be pouring out your heart for yourself. It may be for your kids, your family, or somebody else. But intercede. Go to God. I want us to stand. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have our altar time. If God's speaking to your heart, don't leave here without responding. Father God, this is your time. All I ask is that your perfect will will be done in each and every one of our lives. Lord, I've opened up your word. I've tried to be faithful to your truth. Lord, I've presented it as best I can. I ask you to bless it and use it. Save those who need to be saved. Lord, draw those back home who need to be drawn back. Encourage, comfort, whatever needs to happen today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.